Death will come to us all. This is certain. And yet, there seems to be so much stigma, taboo, fear and difficulty surrounding this inevitable part of life. I'm Sultram, and this is What About Death? Everything you wanted to know about death, but were afraid to ask. Thank you for listening to What About Death podcast, brought to you by karuna.org.au. As you enjoy today's episode, we would love it if you could follow, subscribe, and give us a star rating, hopefully five stars. We will be posting new episodes every two weeks, so be sure to check back and let your friends and family know where they can find us too. In today's episode of What About Death, I speak with Dr. John Troyer from the University of Bath in the United Kingdom, who tells us his view on the stigma and taboo that often seems to surround the topic of death in our society. He also talks about the social and political implications of our perception of dying and death. Hello again, everyone. Well, today we are delighted to be introducing Dr. John Troyer as our guest on our podcast. And uh, John is the director of the Centre for Death and Society at the University of Bath in the United Kingdom. And he's also the senior lecturer in the Department of Social and Policy Sciences. So thank you so much, uh, Dr. Troyer, for joining me today. My pleasure. Happy to do it. So my very first question for you, uh, I ask this of all of our guests, is what is your first memory, recollection, experience of death? My my first uh, recollection of death, um, memory of it, actually when I was, I was a, a child. So I, I grew up uh, in the American funeral industry because my, my father was a funeral director for about 35 years. He's now retired. And I've, I've actually spoken about this a lot, actually, and indeed wrote about it. I never thought I'd write about this, but I wrote about it in the preface to my book, which came out last year, which I thought I would probably at some point mention, but I'll do it now in this first question. Yes. Uh, about <laughs> that, book, that, that book would be Technologies of the Human Corpse, MIT Press, uh, in, in uh, spring, summer of 2020. Anyway, so it's been out. But in that, what I talk about is how when I was a, a child, um, I went to the funeral home with my mom and to... To see my dad, and there was a, a woman in uh, a casket out for uh, the visitation before the family would get there. And this was a funeral home. It wasn't a family funeral home, or not. It wasn't our family. It was a funeral home my dad worked at, but we didn't live at the funeral home. And I remember distinctly seeing the woman in the uh, in the casket. Uh, it was an open casket, as is the American tradition more often than not. And you know, I remember touching her hand, and I remember the hand being cold. Uh, although my father would be the first to point out to you that that is actually incorrect. It is room temperature. It's just because that is a uh, temperature that is cooler than we're used to. Uh, and that, um, it, that that was kind of when I started to get my head around the fact that, um, you know, you could have uh, effectively like dead people, that that was something that would happen. Um, not far, not too far from there. Also, my great grandfather died. 
And I remember we we transported or we drove the the casket that the family used from Minnesota where we were living down to Indiana. And I have very clear memories too of him and his death and uh, well of his his funeral and of his dead body. And um, that was something I became very familiarized with both death and the dead body is, you know, things that happened. Um, it must have been interesting to grow up in an environment with your dad as a funeral director. Well, it, yeah, I mean, it was, and I mean, this is the other thing I've written about too, lots of different places. I was just totally normal. Like I, you know, I, like it wasn't, it, it wasn't, it didn't see, it was just, you know, it's like, well, like what any parent does, you know, you don't, you don't really think about it until of course, in usually when I was getting older, like in my teenage years, I remember friends would be like, you know, what? <laughs> and so, but yeah, I mean, I think one of the things I've come to value and I certainly give it, give how I grew up credit for what I do now. It certainly familiarized my entire sense of sense or sense of self or sense of being with death and dying. And it, it, it normalized it. I mean, it just completely normalized it uh, to the point of it just being something that was just the everyday, uh, mm-hmm. which is true. I think it is everyday, but it's just that I was, I was in a way, this is just how I grew up. So I, I, you know, I didn't know any other way and I've quite frankly never known any other way. I think it's interesting because one of the reasons we're doing this podcast is that there appears at least to be an enormous amount of stigma and taboo that's associated with death. And so I'm interested in in what your experience and what your research indicates to you about this stigma and taboo. Yeah, see, I've I'm always I've always been, and I think partly it's because of how I grew up. I've just always been deeply skeptical of both. I mean, I understand the stigma question because I think that can come back. So, what I mean by that is, so for example, I, I work in the history of HIV/AIDS, right, and that epidemic, and I, we yep. can absolutely talk about a stigma connected to AIDS and dead bodies with AIDS and that that whole experience. And I think the stigma of disease, and I think pathologized. Uh, abject corpses in a sense that and that's how i've talked about sort of the the experience of the hiv aids corpse and what it did um which has had resonances around covid19 which i'm sure at some point we'll end up talking about covid19 (laughs) but i think that there is absolutely a relationship there but i've always been i've always been really uh, perhaps i can use the term radically skeptical i'm not sure if that's the best way but of the taboo argument because i've never i understand the argument but it, it actually i came to it rather late in my, even my PhD years. And I think partly it was just because it had never occurred to me that this was something people thought was a taboo because I had just grown up with it. Like I thought, what are you talking about? This isn't a taboo. Like it's, it happens every day. Uh, and I think that, that, you know, over the course of my research, and I think there, there were a number of authors, one key author in particular, Lynn Laughlin, who wrote a very important book called The Craft of Dying in 1978, uh, which I convinced MIT Press to reissue in 2000. And I think it was 2019 is when the, the reissue came out because it was long out of print. And in, you know, in 78, Lynn Laughlin is surveying the number of death movements that were occurring across the West, particularly in the United States, but also England. I, I knew less about Australia, but I do know that there were, there were uh, things afoot based around developments in palliative care and end of life care and life support and a whole long list of, of 
just practices that way. Anyway, Lynn Laughlin is a sociologist. She's out in California. And so she does this big survey across the States. And she just says, it just seems impossible to say that this is a taboo topic because everybody's just talking about it all the time. But mm-hmm. that, but that what the taboo serves is a function for deaf social movements and that she she is a great sociologist of social movements and so what she says is we're seeing the formation now of death as a social movement uh which is borrowing from the early environmental movement but also second wave feminism and the women's movement and i think that the the women's movement's role in developing death studies has kind of been forgotten about in some ways um not totally i'm also conscious that i'm like i'm an enormous white dude so i'm always like you know conscious about trying to you know be but i think there is a there's a resonance there um that then actually does become picked up and relevant during the aids epidemic particularly in lgbtq plus communities but i think when we come back to the taboo argument what lynn Laughlin will say is the taboo serves a function and the function it serves is it serves as the enemy it's the evocation of an enemy that all social movements need. And, th- and that it doesn't really matter if it's true or not. It's just useful. And mm-hmm. I think that, that since the seventies, when the taboo gets picked up in, in a strange way, sort of a growth of, I would always argue a kind of development out of American uh, understandings of, of Freud, but we don't have to go too far down to, into a sort of a Freudian <laughs> discussion, but, but, but then also Ernest Becker who writes The Denial of Death, which which I've always, in 73 that comes out, he wins the Pulitzer in 74, right? But he's writing it as he's dying. Uh, I've always maintained, and I'm, I'm alone in this, that actually what he writes when he writes The Denial of Death is a really compelling critique of the U.S. war in Vietnam, but that it's not understood in that way because it's always read as being this, this like rethinking of death, you know, from an anthropologist, which I think he's doing, but it, you know, Becker is contributing to this, this notion. And then also you've got uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross on death and dying. And she's, you know, trying to explore grief and bereavement practices is where she, you know, comes up with these infamous notion of different kinds of, you know, steps. But of course she will then spend the rest of her career saying, no, I don't mean like distinct steps. Everyone's getting this wrong. And I think what we enter into is a sort of pop cultural understanding of death and dying, which is not bad. I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but that, that it persists. And, and I think the taboo argument persists because it is, it is just very useful. And it doesn't mean people don't believe in it, but I also think there are lots of topics that make people uncomfortable. Um, and indeed I was just talking earlier today with a, a, someone interested in doing a different kind of project on death and dying. And I said like, you know, lots of people are uncomfortable talking about a lot of things. Like there are a lot of people who don't want to talk about like snakes or spiders deeply phobic about those things. In fact, I've done some talks where I've said, you know, all right, you've got, as an audience, you've got a choice. You can either talk about the music you want played at your funeral or credit card debt. Which one do you want to talk about? And almost to a person, they're like, let's talk about the music. I have no interest in talking about my credit card debt. No, that's not totally a taboo. But what I'm saying is I think, I think people are actually, most people, not everyone, but a lot of people anecdotally much more okay talking about death and dying or think about it or doing stuff with it then then we give a lot of people credit for it's just that we're not given the opportunities to really discuss it the way that that many people would like us to i think death has been it seems to be and this is my observation i'm working with people who are dying and their their families and friends is that death has become 
sort of a much more individualistic view, I guess, or a, an insular way of seeing death. I'm curious to know whether that is what influences our the fear or the phobia about talking about our own death, talking or, you know, wanting to avoid and even ignore the impendingness of our death, which might be today, tomorrow or or a hundred years. So what do you think, you know, influences that? Well, I, th- I mean, a couple of things. I, I, I mean, I think that there have been one of the key developments has just been the ex- extraordinary extension of lifespan you know, across the West predominantly, not equally across all, you know, economic populations or even across race and ethnicity, but certainly there has been an extension of lifespan. And I think on the one hand, I think on the whole has been, I would say, good or productive in as much as the reason I say that is because, you know, I'm not sure anyone wants to go back to like Victorian mortality rates, you know what I mean? Like it was, it was pretty bad. And, mm. and in fact, you know, even in the, even in the early 20th century, it was, you know, I think people would find mortality rates shocking. This is actually one of the reasons I've, I've kind of been arguing that I think COVID has been so jarring is because it seemed like it was a return to this older time in a mm. way, whether or not people realize that or not, but it's certainly in terms of the, the presentation of mortality rate that way. I think that because of, of just an overall extension of lifespan, which on the whole I think has been you know good, that has meant that death has become something that has become less commonplace. And as soon as something becomes less commonplace, it becomes much more easier to I think, and I think you, you at least you know say ignore. But I always think that ignoring something is still acknowledging it. It's just that it, it becomes a, a different way of doing that. So then the question becomes, how do you encourage, how do you, how do you cultivate, how do you support, and particularly in end-of-life scenarios, you know, like hospices, how do you inculcate that kind of that conversation discussion? Because that does need to happen and that does need to be done. My answer to that has always been, I think there needs to be much more teaching around the history or, you know, the inclusion of you know, topics like death and dying, uh, particularly in uh, school years, younger children or children, however, however old they you, you want to go, or certainly teenagers and university students. Anytime you try to talk about developing a curriculum like that, th- the students find it endlessly fascinating, but it's the parents who oppose it. Yes. <laughs> so, I mean, that's, I mean, I, I teach a course called a final year sociology course for my undergraduates called Sociology of Death. And it is routinely the most oversubscribed popular class in the department. Not, I mean, it, it has nothing to do with me. It just, it's always been that way. Wh- whoever teaches it and the students love it. Like they love it. And, you know, to a person, they'll be like, this was an amazing class. I'm like, yeah, you guys get it. Like, and, and that's what saves it from a university. Although our university is very good. I'm very supported by the university of Bath, any university that might be like, Ooh, I don't know. And then they're like, but well, it's really popular with the students. So, <laughs> you know, like, if the kids are behind it, then maybe we like it too. It's our um, adult baggage, I think, that influences our and our adult conditioning. That well, I just think being weird that. about those things. I mean, there was a there was a study that was done a number of years ago. I came across when I was <laughs> was I was doing my my PhD research. This was a while ago, but it was I can't. It was like a someone at a center for aging or something like that in the states, and I can't remember the exact title. But he was giving testimony to a. a a U.S. Senate committee looking at end-of-life care or any number of those related topics. And he had said in a survey that he had done, he had found 
adult children were more comfortable speaking with their own teenagers about sex than they were necessarily with their with their own older parents about end of life issues mm, <laughs> and, and, and i think and i think i think partly it, there's again i'm not i don't think there's any necessarily kind of fear or something like that i just think it's a lot of, for a lot of people they just they're not sure where to start they're not sure how to just not they don't necessarily have the language i think is one of the issues uh to try and do it which is why i come back to you i think courses teaching i think that becomes important just to give people a sense of okay this is how we can start so let's talk about that way so i'm interested in what your perspective is on how death impacts socially and maybe even politically because i think we don't think of it like that but you know i get a sense that there is um social and political responses to death particularly in a in a collective sort of way I'm always the first to sort of like let's start with the political because I think the politics of death are I mean that for me in many ways was, was our service. So yes, I think that they're absolutely both visible social impacts as well as very visible politics involved in in something like a uh, well any pandemic, but COVID in particular because it, it's the one in front of us. Although, like I said earlier, I, I've written about do read about uh, work on the AIDS epidemic, but that's also uh, you know a pandemic that is still with us. That hasn't gone away. It's still with us as much as any global pandemic. But I, I think the one thing, you know, coming back to COVID, so it is now a year ago that I, I stood in front of my students at the University of Bath and in what would become the last in-person class I taught uh, in front of students, although we didn't quite know that then, but it, it was something I kind of thought was coming. And I just said, guys, I, you know, this is a novel virus. Um, I, you know, we, we don't know a lot about it, but here's what I can tell you about it is that assuming this becomes a pandemic, which it had already been declared by the World Health Organization, uh, then a lot of people are going to die because it's a novel virus. A lot of the people who are going to die are going to be black and brown because it is going to disproportionately impact uh, socioeconomic uh, groups who won't have access to care. And, mm-hmm. and I was thinking in the UK and the US context more than anything, but certainly across the West. And I said, so I can't tell you a lot, but I know that's going to happen, that, that we're going to see a disproportionately affected populations in the already poor and those who don't have access to care. And that's what happened. And I don't think you have to be a genius to figure that out, but politically that becomes the way that these things work, no matter what happens. But also then to, you know, the politics around, for example, care homes. How do you regard what what is the social uh, regarding of the older population? And how do you come up with care policies? And so, I mean, you, you began to see a kind of cascading effect of, you know, governments around the world confronting a lot of, social inequality issues, but then also just a lot of political issues that they had kind of been trying to just ignore. But if pandemics do anything is they bring them right to the front and put, put them in everybody's view, if you want to look, uh, and make it almost impossible to ignore. So what about situations like perception of worthiness of acceptance of death versus not? So I'm thinking of, for example, how society has little empathy for certain death of certain people versus great uh, empathy, I guess, for those, you know, that they love. And I'm thinking, for example, people like, you know, homeless or areas of society 
that we don't feel so connected to. Um, has anything come in your research about our level of empathy between yeah. various groups of people and our our understanding of death or our empathy towards their death versus not? Yes, I mean, I think absolutely. I mean, I think um, so. So one of the areas I'm always one of the areas of research I'm always kind of working around, both on the periphery, but I'm starting to move more into it, is around um, disability and death. Um, in both, and by disability, that's a broad category. It is a big house with lots of people, but I think that it was already an area I was interested in, and it has everything to do with things like, for example, making funerals accessible, both physically disabled as well as you know neurodivergent and in everything in between, but also to making cemeteries accessible, and which is a huge issue, particularly in the UK with its vast. Victorian cemeteries, sometimes they're the worst places for people to try and go to if they have any kind of physical limitations. Mm. So my point is that I think something like, you know, COVID has really had a big impact on, for example, communities who come from different disability groups. This has had a huge impact on things like vaccinations, but it, it has also raised a very uncomfortable question that, that advocates, disability advocates, and who are activists in this arena have been raising for decades, mm. which is we are treated as a disposable population. Uh, and I think it is, it is that disposability that you're, you're, you're narrowing in on here. For, so for example, what are, who are what become the disposable populations? And I'm not using that term as something I would ever want to use in any kind of descriptive research. But that is effectively the way that it is that a lot of activist groups want to raise it. And I think they're right. I think they're right. And I think that, you know, what happens is, is you, what you find, and you see this time and time again, is that you have a lot of governments, and I'm speaking broadly here, will have policies. They'll say, our stated policy is to do this, but then they're not doing that. And effectively, people are dying. And it's by the fact the non-policy becomes the policy. That's one of the only ways to interpret it. So I'll come back to care homes. I think in the United States, uh, which is a different, it's a federal system, similar to Australia, actually. Um, but, but you know, the UK is nationalized. So if you look at things like care homes in the UK, it became clear a year ago that the policy around care homes for an older population was a non-policy the non-policy was a policy and it was simply at some point, now I don't think anyone, I'm sure investigations will come forward about this later, but there will be, there will be some kind of understanding that, that the determination was made that there was nothing more to be done about the care homes that the other decisions had to be made and that the populations there were, there were going to be higher mortality rates than, than people would like, but that was just going to have to be the way it was. Mm. And that was a political decision. Not on the part of the carers. I want to make that very clear. Like the care staff were doing everything they could, as were the families, but they were limited in what they could do. And I think that's that's a clear example of where policy and politics begin to merge. There seems to be, I mean, at least uh, in Australia, and I suspect in other, you know, Western nations, a shift towards community palliative care, palliative care in, yep. the, in the home. So I'm interested in your view on 
it's a historical and cultural shift that has moved from everybody dying in the home not that long ago, um, really only 100, 100 years ago when hospitals came into existence, that sort of changed. Um, the move from that into a medical response and then back into a, a palliative uh, response in terms of uh, dying and death. What's your view of that and, and where do you think that shift has, has come from? Well, I think, I mean, I think you're right. I mean, there's been a lot of development in a real push for, um, you know, rethinking end of life care, but also to making it possible for, for different scenarios where people are able to, you know, die, for example, either in the home or more comfortably, for example, something like a hospice, whatever that might be. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, for a lot of, I've always, I've always in the back of my head, I've always thought, I think there, there are, there are more people there. Certainly there are a lot of people and everyone will look at different polling that's done on this or surveys about the number of people who would actually prefer to die at home and not the hospital. And I think that's true. Although I think that in different scenarios, there are many instances where individuals for lots of different reasons that aren't always, aren't always clear until you're kind of in the moment actually would prefer to be someplace that has a slightly more medical setting or care. So that's where I think hospices come in. And I think Cicely Saunders in 64, when she starts, you know, what is regarded now as the modern hospice movement, trying to stress the fact, which going back to politics for a second, we forget that hospices were a radically political move in their time yeah. certainly in the early 70s just society like it was a radical politics that and when i i have to explain this to my students and they're like you mean like the the hospice like you mean the place with the charity shop <laughs> and I'm like, yes it was a radical politics and they're like huh never thought yeah. about it that way you know what i mean and i think you know and but it really was like it was a, like a big deal and I think that, you know, this idea of, of being able to die in home or, or coming home to die, I think that that is absolutely something that emerges out of um, a rethinking across the 70s again. And this really does come across the West and the development of, you know, palliative medicine and, and comfort care. But that you then find an enormous development of just it, – it also – I have always – wanted to look more into this, but has a, has a slight weird relationship with a kind of almost like neoliberal choice regimen, you know, when everyone should have more choice about what happens, uh, which I think is true. And I, I'm not, but I'm always a bit suspicious about people trying to market things <laughs> you know, like, that way, like what product are you trying to sell me right now? But what I would say is I think that there is an element of meeting people as much as you can with their desires and wants, particularly at the end of life, um, wherever that might be. And uh, that I think is important. And I think that that is, you know, really out of a, a, an act of respect for people as they're entering that, that kind of end of life. But it, it's also one of those things I think where, again, it's just going to come down to individuals, I think in, in sort of in the scenarios in which they find themselves, which of course it's difficult to always predict because we don't really know until we're much closer to it. And I'm sure in a hospice, you would come across this all the time where suddenly it's, it just gets very real. That's a weird I way to say it, but I think that's one of the ways I approach it. Yeah, I think it's, that's absolutely correct. And I think it's one of the really interesting ways of recognizing that, 
you know, that intersect that death, even though we often perceive death as very individualistic, you know, insular almost, that in fact there are social and political implications. And it's, yes. I think it, it's not generally recognised that that's the case. I mean, I think one of the paradoxes of COVID, of the COVID-19 pandemic is, as you know, and, and that's what we're calling it right now. Who knows what we'll end up calling it in 20, 30 years from now. But let's just sit, you stick with COVID. That I think that, you know, those deaths are understood by and large as a, as a collective death. They're not, they're not understood as individualized deaths, even though every single one of those deaths is an individualized death. It's an individual yeah. death with individual families who will know that they had a family member die from it, but they will all be grouped together into a collective understanding yeah. of that. And, and I think that's, that's one of the paradoxes of the collective and the individualness of death, which is, you know, it's very common to, to think about the collective and the individual, but it's also, it's just very, it becomes very, I think, easy to see how at a certain point, there will always be a, an efficiency that is chosen in describing mm-hmm. all of the deaths versus the individualized death and that the collective part and that, and that families, and this is where it's going to become political. I'm predicting in, in the not too distant future, you're going to become, you're going to see more and more families. You've already got them who will begin pressing for political recognition of what happened. Because of course, as in the COVID case, we're talking about largely preventable public health deaths. And that's one of the key distinctions. So we're not talking about a terminal illness. We're talking about a preventable public illness. And it's that preventableness that I think is going to aid the politics or, or help support it. And I think the statistics versus the, maybe you would say humanity or something. I, yeah. mean, I think where the right. political yeah. uh, politicization of it happens yeah. is that yeah. we forget the humanity of dying yeah. and death. Yeah. No, I mean, there's always, there are always people in the numbers, right? Those are individuals in the numbers. And, and I think, you know, and, and you've see, you, you will see some projects and those go on and they were predictable and I'm glad to see them where there will always be a trying to highlight people who have died on an individual case. The New York Times newspaper started a, a, you know, a segment that's been running since about a year now called Those We've Lost. Different news programs will highlight different people from different backgrounds. And that's all good. But I think that that it's also interesting to me to think about, you know, there are a lot of other people who have died during COVID who didn't die from anything to do with COVID. And, and I think that for a lot of those families, this can also become doubly alienating. It's alienating because they're not able to spend time with their loved one the way they want to. And it's further alienating because their family member died during this pandemic that they didn't die from. And they're not getting anything they'll think. Right? It just becomes like a, like a, a doubling of the grief that way. Or could be, and it, you know, but who knows? Maybe not. I mean, it, it, you know, everyone's going to be different. But that I think in the long term, there's going to need to be a look at at how does everyone who died during this last year just become swept up in a COVID uh, umbrella or COVID sort of like you know box? I guess that, that's not the best category. Category COVID category, mm. or will there be more work to done to delineate all the different deaths that took place because you are talking about individual people? On that, you know, the interesting factor is who engineers that narrative, you know. Right. That- oh, of course, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah really. Oh, oh, that will be the battle to come. Right? We'll all be fighting over that narrative, you know, the, you know, the narrative. And that's, that's what I'm, I'm talking about, you know. The, this is, and that's where it becomes a, a political element about, you know, how, 
because even a year ago, I was talking to some colleagues and I was like, you know, I don't know. I feel like as much as this is a big, it's, you know, it's important to get people talking about death and die. I just get the sense that people are going to be like, right, it's gone. We're done. Let's move on. And that 20 years time, that's when there's going to be all the PhDs being written, you know, and meanwhile, you know, you feel terrible for the families who had anybody die during this last year, but specifically, I think, you know, related to COVID, but then, but of course, anyone who had anyone dying was impacted. I mean, there's, there's no way around that. And will for the foreseeable future. Yes, it's certainly um, fascinating. But unfortunately, we're going to um, have to draw this to a close. So I really do appreciate your time and your insights to this topic. And hopefully we can have uh, many more conversations. It's such an interesting area of discussion, dying and death. You know, talk with my colleagues at the Centre for Death and Society too, because we're all different and we don't agree. (laughs) No, that's the beauty of it, isn't it? We all have different perceptions of it and that's... That's my goal is to bring as many of those uh, out as I possibly can. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Please join me in our next episode of What About Death when I speak with Dr. Daniel Westcott, who is a forensic anthropologist and the director of the Forensic Anthropology Center in Texas State in the United States of America. Dr. Westcott shares his knowledge and experience working and researching in this fascinating field. He explains how this research helps us to understand what happens to the human body after death and how this information can have a significant impact and make such a difference for individuals and communities when dealing with missing persons, natural disasters and crime. I look forward to your company then. Thank you for listening to What About Death podcast, brought to you by karuna.org.au. Don't forget that we have more to look forward to with new episodes dropping every two weeks. If you enjoyed today's episodes, please consider leaving us a star rating, hopefully five stars. And remember to follow, subscribe, and tell your friends and family about us too.